0: Welcome to the Defense and Aerospace Report podcast. I'm your host, Vago Miradian. Our podcast is brought to you by Bell since 1935. Bell has been redefining flight. Learn more about its pioneering spirit at bellflight.com. Inflation remains a continuing concern, not just for global markets, but among consumers, as well as defense departments on fixed budgets worldwide. Investors sue Airbus over a bribery scandal, and to date, COVID has killed more than 837,000 Americans an increase of more than 12,000 dead in a week for a total of 5.5, or I should say for a total of at least 5.5 million worldwide. Before we get started, Leonardo DRS sponsors our global coverage. Northrop Grumman sponsors our weekly cyber report and our cyber coverage overall, and General Atomics Aeronautical Systems sponsors our coverage of strategy. And be sure to tune in to our special coverage of the Surface Navy Association's annual symposium in person next week sponsored by Huntington Ingalls Industries and Raytheon Technologies. We'll be interviewing senior leaders, including Vice Admiral Bill Galinas, the commander of the U.S. Naval Sea Systems Command, and our CAVUS Ships podcast, hosted by our contributing editor, Chris CAVUS and our producer, Chris Cervello. We'll take a deeper daily dive into the show with Gabble to gavel coverage. Don't miss it. And also check out the downlink with our contributing editor, Laura Winter, who takes a thoughtful weekly look at All Things Space. Joining us today, as they do every week, are Dr. Rocket Ron Epstein of Bank of America Merrill Lynch, Sash Tusa of the Independent Equity Research Firm Agency Partners in London, and Richard Abelafia of the Aerodynamic Advisory Consultancy here in Washington, D.C. Everybody, welcome back to the program. Great to be here, Vago. Thanks. Yeah, it's always a pleasure, Vago. Thank you.
1: Happy winter day, Vago. Great to be here.
0: Yes, yes, exactly. Uh, Raining and dreary and cold in in Washington, uh, alas, but we did have uh, two quick bouts of snow and and hopefully we'll have some more uh, snow coming along the way. Ron, uh, first, uh, terrific again to uh, co-moderate the annual uh, Aerospace and Defense Conference. Absolutely fantastic, Richard. Thanks very much for your terrific role in that, uh, both as a presenter, but also in the Three Amigos uh, discussion with uh, Ron, Richard, and our uh, good friend and and your new boss, uh, Dr. Kevin Michaels of uh, Aerodynamic Advisory uh, Ron, uh, start, and I want to get a, a, a look a little bit at takeaways from that conference a, a little bit later in the program. But Ron, start us off uh, on how uh, defense, commercial aviation, and space stocks uh, performed uh, over the last week.
2: Yeah, I think probably one of the bigger bigger stories you got to look at, and it had an impact on how the how the market traded. Was you know, a you mentioned inflation, but what that's had on on, on bond yields. So if you look at the 10-year, um, it shot up to 1.8% this week, just under 1.8%. Um, so you're really starting to see that, that change in the market. And you saw that reflected in um, some rotation going on in the market. So The NASDAQ for the week was down almost uh, 6%, where the S&P was up 3%, uh, and the Dow Jones Industrials uh, were up uh, almost 5%. Uh, so you're seeing you know, that you saw this tech sell-off and you saw some rotation into um, some industrials and, and other names. And, and that's what you might expect in the current current market environment where the market's starting to worry a little bit about uh, about inflation, maybe a little bit about, about growth, uh, interest rates. Uh, in our world, um, the best performers uh, for the week were, of the large cap names were Northrop Grumman. Northrop was up almost 12% on the week. Uh, Raytheon Technologies was up almost 12% of the week, Boeing was up about 8.5%, and then everybody else was kind of sprinkled in between, um, and that, that's what we saw happen. So A&D you know, outperformed uh, the broader um, market in general, and most certainly uh, the more you know, tech-oriented names that are represented by the NASDAQ.
0: Once again, right, defense uh, behaving uh, defensively on, on capital markets, right? Uh, kill surprise. Um, Sash, let me bring you in. Want to get your sense on what the key drivers were on European markets? Uh, obviously some news flow uh, there uh, as well, uh, driving performance, take it away.
3: The surprise to me was that the civil stocks ended higher uh, on the week in general. The defence stocks are being defensive, but they're not doing very much at present. And I think that um, one of the things that is holding back European defence stocks or some European defence stocks is a concern about uh, ESG um, and the degree to which ESG investment criteria might ultimately hold uh, banks back from lending money to uh, defense companies. This is very, very, uh, still, still, very much to be determined. But it's, it's something we, we've had quite a lot of pushback from uh, investors during the week who have been saying, you know, what happens if X company can't access uh, bank debt? Now, of you is actually very little. Uh, you know, they have ready access to the bond markets, and the bond markets have distinctly lower morals than um, than even clearing banks. But uh, it, it's a, uh, you know, that's been a. a, a Quite an interesting theme this week. Probably the most important, although you know, the, the, the standout story for me this week, there has been Dassault Aviation who uh, reported their uh, 2021 20, uh, orders and deliveries. They're, they're not all um, announcing uh, full year uh, results until uh, March. But uh, their orders and deliveries were were very very good indeed. Um, and Falcon had another good half year, another uh, twenty five aircraft ordered. Um, they actually delivered six aircraft more than that, than they expected to, which was quite impressive, um, and and gives a very interesting uh, uh, you know view of of what their underlying stock build can be at the end of the year. But it's the first year since two thousand and eight that. Um, Uh, Falcon has had a a book to bill as high as this, 1.6 times. And the really interesting thing for me was the uh, Rafale uh, order intake. You would think that we know what Rafale orders are because they are typically big, very, very high profile, um, and... You know, therefore, there shouldn't be too many surprises. But this was that, you know, the the funny thing for me was Dassault announced 49 new orders that compares with 25 deliveries. So, again, a a healthy book to build. Um, We knew about France 12, Greece 6, Egypt 30. Where's the other order come from? I think where it comes from is the, if I'm pretty damn sure where it comes from, is that Egypt uh, had a rather unfortunate crash of one of the first Rafales that they took delivery of from their first batch of orders back about four years ago. Now, um, it was a pretty senior individual involved, and there has there's quite a lot of loss of face involved in the whole process. My Feeling would be that France has repl- has replaced that aircraft as an attrition replacement, and probably bundled up uh, inside uh, their own order for twelve aircraft um, because uh, they wanted to keep the customer sweet, and that's really quite high class uh, customer service if you ask me. But it's been very very funny trying to trying to trying to pin down where that order came from.
0: I, I find admirable uh, your characterization of Dusso as classy. I think people uh, recognize that about the company. Uh, although the the statement about the loose morality of of bond markets for shame, for shame, uh, Sash, uh, and then putting clearing oh, sorry, houses I'll, in I'll... that as well. Forsooth, <laughs> forsooth, <laughs> uh, you all know who you are, uh, Richard. Um, give you know, I want to uh, go around the horn with all of you on what you guys thought were also some of the more interesting and differentiated stories over the week that caught uh, your attention. We're also doing this a little bit, as we discussed before we got started, for the show to, to, to not sound like it's it's the... The, the drumbeat on coronavirus uh or omicron as as sadly it will be and we will manage to cover that a little bit uh over the course of the conversation as well but also get an opportunity to get a take from each of you on what you guys thought was sort of stood out for you as stories over the course of the week richard uh start us off and then we'll go around the horn uh as as would like to get uh ron and sasha's take on that as well go ahead richard
1: yeah you know it was um it was uh, not exactly the the fastest moving week out there, but at least we got to uh, maybe talk <laughs> talk less about Omicron. It, it seemed like perhaps just maybe cases are cresting in, in places, and this will burn itself out in a month. At least that's my, still my fervent hope. In terms of interesting items, Lockheed Martin delivering 142 F-35s. They had said a range of 133 to 139, so it was three more than expected, but then they caveated that and said, well, the additional three over the range, they're going to count against our uh, 2022 expectations, which means they're still being extremely conservative. And it could just be that they're much happier to surprise than disappoint, as a lot of companies are, or it could be you know, more of the great mystery. Demand for the F-35 would seem to argue for more than a, a cap of 156 per year, which is the current expected cap as opposed to the original, or until recent, 175 or so. Um, So what's going on with that? A bit of a mystery. It could be Lockheed Martin still, perhaps, maybe not the most commercially responsive company on the planet. And even though they do enjoy tremendous commercial success with the F-35, but it was worth noting, I too was intrigued, uh, as was Sash by uh, so particularly Falcon, you know, um, I, I don't know how many of the booked Falcons in that 1.6 book to bill were for the 10x. I don't know whether they've opened the order book on that. I assume they have. Um, I would have thought it would be higher if they had. Um, maybe, Sash, you want to address that. I I'm, I'm a little. I would have thought there'd be an out-of-the-box order book for the, the 10x that was considerable. Because, you know, this is one of the big issues I think the business aircraft market is wrestling with. Can you really support for an indefinite amount of time, three players with80 million dollar products? And I don't think anyone really knows. Uh, another interesting question, of course, is how high production goes. Given this demand, you know, there's this ongoing debate at Textron, Gulfstream, Bombardier, you know, do you firm up pricing before you firm up volume? If so, by how much? And if you do, how long until somebody breaks the code and says, screw it, we're grabbing market share at the expense of profit. Nobody knows the answers to all of this, but the fact that they, uh, they delivered more than anticipated uh, indicates that perhaps people are going for production. So you have to watch any kind of upward momentum of production in the business aircraft market. So that's what hit me this week is interesting.
0: Uh, and uh, and that was one of the themes that was discussed at the at the uh, annual uh, Bank of America uh, conference that we participate in uh, as as well. Ron, wh- what were the stories uh, that stood out to you over the course of the week? Whether it was uh, on the defense side, commercial uh, aviation, or or space.
2: Yeah, I'd say maybe a couple things uh, jumped out to me. Um, you know, I kind of reiterate uh, Richard's um, comments on F thirty five. I mean, having F thirty five deliveries come in. Uh, a bit higher than what Lockheed was calling for um, is you know, clearly a you know a decent news for Lockheed, uh, and then you, you, you had the Allegiant Air order for seven three seven sevens, seven three seven seven Maxes. Um, I think that was, you know, viewed as clearly a positive for for Boeing, be it that Allegiant's been an Airbus operator, albeit they got their Airbus fleet, I guess, used aircraft. right? And that, I don't know if that makes a difference or not, but um, that they kind of um, shifted to the seven three seven seven. My understanding there was sort of a battle between that and the A two twenty three hundred. Uh, and they just couldn't get the A 22300s in time, and I'm certain they got a, a pretty nice deal from Boeing. So, I mean, that's a, a positive check mark on the seven three seven Max uh, box. Uh, I think that's that's probably the stuff you know outside of our conference that, that jumped out at me. Sash,
3: I just want to pick up um, actually Ron's point there on Allegiant. It's very, very. I mean, it was a very interesting order. Um, and interestingly you know the the Allegiant share price which fell 6 percent 6, on the day suggests that its investors are not that enamored of it going from a pick aircraft up cheap and second hand market business model to go out and buy new now you know i think as ronda i say i think they'll have got a very good uh deal for their mac 7s what i think is also interesting is that we, and this comes this sort of reflects um Richard's point a little bit on just sort of pricing discipline. I don't think Airbus feels it needs to pick up or you know compete super aggressively for every single order from an ultra low cost carrier. And you know we 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 talked last year about the degree to which you know Ryanair's constant complaints about not getting a good enough deal from Boeing uh, probably reflected the fact that Ryanair got the cycle wrong, uh, the order cycle, and left its ordering too late. By which stage Boeing wanted to firm up prices. I think we're seeing a little bit of that with Airbus as well. I think Airbus has got very few slots for, for A320 NEOs uh, until 2026. Um, they've clearly got a pricing cost problem with the A220 uh, and, the, and they've got to address that. I think as far as BizJets is concerned, um, in a, some of the comments that have been coming were coming out from the Bizjet companies before the pandemic held some of the blame, although I think this was, you know, uh, you've got to t- treat all of this with a pretty big pinch of uh, salt, uh, at Bombardier uh, as being a, a consistent price discounter. That may have reflected the fact that Bombardier had a, a, a quite a wide web of third party distributors who uh, probably confused the pricing uh, in, the, in the market slightly. And of course they've been buying those out and uh, simplifying their business model a lot recently, but uh, yeah. I mean, historically, Dassault would have said the market can only take two ultra large biz jets. um, And they've decided to break that mold themselves. Uh, I think it will put pressure on the other two, but probably the most pressure on Bombardier to, uh, to, to match what they're doing with the Falcon 10X.
0: Let me uh, introduce another topic that was something that was a consistent theme that came up in the Bank of America uh, conference from the defense analysts, but also uh, even on, on, the, on the second day as we were talking about maintenance, repair, overhaul, and all of that, right, is this uh, concern that as inflation is going to cause a problem is, and is causing a problem society-wide, defense uh, ministries and defense departments that are on fixed budgets uh, are, are going to feel a pretty big pinch. I mean, some of uh, the estimates at our uh, conference uh, were uh, even a $5 billion impact on a monthly basis on DoD, right? Uh, as, I, as I joked, I'm not very good at math, but that would suggest $60 billion in buying power lost from the Pentagon's $740 billion dollars uh, which is a, a sizable chunk that would have to be make up, made up somehow, right? Billion here, billion there, you're talking about real money. Um, Ron, uh, let me start off with you and then just sort of go across the piece on how folks ought to be thinking about this and what are the potential ramifications of that. I understand defense, uh, you know, defense stocks behaving defensively. Even if the Biden administration has a very positive take on defense, there will be inflationary reality that's going to press on the department and it's not abundantly clear whether Congress is going to come up with another $60 billion, right? I mean, the, the whole of government will be eating these costs. Ron, sort of give give us a sense on how, and and you're thinking now that you've had a weekend to sort of digest all of this, what this potentially means for DOD and DOD contractors. Because, right, I mean, any big cost increase would have to be, right? I mean, you have to go through a process of allowable costs. It's it's pretty clear the department will go along with these increased costs, but it. Goes along with the entries costs as long as it can make the payments, and it may have to cut other things in order to make those payments, right? So this is a Peter and Paul, robbing Peter to pay Paul situation, isn't it? Potentially,
2: yeah. I think you have to think about it a couple, couple different ways, a couple different angles on this one. Um, typically, there's lags between inflation and when it hits uh, labor and contracts and raw materials, and it's not generally it's not immediate, right? Because there's contracts in place and so on and so forth but if you look at just you know so the military pay increase is about 4.6 percent if i remember right um i think if you look at social security benefits this year and that's a little bit maybe more telling um uh, social security benefits um um uh, the cost adjustment for inflation is 5.9 percent this year right and I, that's, i'm surprised the press hasn't covered that anyway um so what happens well a, a either they buy less because they have to pay more or uh, the budget has to get bigger, right? So, if 740 is where it is for you know, you know fiscal 22, if you think about um, at least conceptually, um, if the Biden administration was going to ask for flat year on year, and they started at 715 uh, yeah, it, with a request for fiscal 22, their their starting request to be flat in real terms has to be interestingly enough, just kind of by chance, about 740, right? So that's 715 adjusted for 5% inflation. And then Congress takes it from there. So if, if the federal government doesn't adjust the budget for inflation, then they buy less. I think it's just that simple. That's the math. Um, and then ultimately, and I don't want to sort of belittle it, if you think about $60 billion in the overall federal budget, it's not that much money. You know, I mean, it's. I guess it's kind of sad that I can say that, but it's. it's just the truth, right? So, um, in the end, is you know, does if if, if we were expecting a five percent increase year over year um, in normal inflationary times, normal mean, I'll call it two percent inflationary times, then and, and that would get us to seven forty plus about five percent get you just under 800, 780, something like that, seven ninety. Um, then maybe the budget for Fiscal twenty-three, when it's all said and done and adjusted for inflation, has to come in over eight hundred. You know, call it eight twenty or something like that to absorb some of those inflationary costs. Hopefully, it is transient, right? And maybe that means the budget out in 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 future years goes up by less, or maybe even goes down because you have a you know a deflation adjustment or something. Who knows? I mean, that's hard to imagine. But anyway, I, I, that, that's my two cents on it. Right?
0: Sash, how is UK MOD coping with this? What are the statements the department has made, and what are the statements that you've noticed other departments uh, across uh, Europe uh, have have made? Right, I mean these these pressures are likely affecting everybody to a degree, uh, even if they may be somewhat more pronounced, or more attention falls on them on the
3: U.S. side of the uh, of the Atlantic. Uh, UK first, MOD will cope with this badly because MOD. Always copes with this sort of thing badly. There is a, I mean, I, I have, and this is probably a rather unusual statement to make, but I mean I have a degree of sympathy for MED because they find it very hard to comprehend what is actually mathematically provable, which is that defense always has a higher underlying inflation rate than the general economy, partly because it's a a small a small specialized subsector that has diseconomies of scale. Um, but I would. Uh, I think that inflation is actually affecting not just the UK but most European defence budgets in men, in much more pernicious ways than uh, input costs, i.e., you know, equipment costs more. That uh, you know, the, the lags associated with price escalation clauses tend to be a twelve to eighteen months or thereabouts. But what is really hurting uh, European defence budgets is actually manpower costs, personnel costs, and it's it's not that personnel. Pay is going up fast. It should go up faster, but it always takes time. But it's the costs of uh, accommodation and other issues aso- associated with you know, terms and conditions. Because if you don't actually look after your servicemen properly, and the UK does not, but most countries are pretty bad at it, um, you have very, very high uh, levels of departures. And then you discover that your, your armed forces are under strength. And therefore, they're having to spend more on really, really unsexy areas like barrack accommodation, just to make sure that uh, they don't have extremely high um, levels of, you know, premature uh, voluntary releases, uh, which really hits uh, availability of specific formations. That is that is one big issue. The other big issue, actually, I think this, that's going to affect European defence companies this year, um, is actually uh, just supply chain problems you know the semiconductor problem is hitting you know i've had more companies talk to me about that in the last month or so than i expected you know who knew there was quite so many semiconductors in a 40 millimeter grenade i certainly didn't um but uh you know when you start having that as an area where uh the you know the the issues that have affected much more mundane uh things like white goods and cars but that's starting to you know, cascade its way through through the defense industry, I think that's going to cause problems for a lot of our companies, particularly in the first half of this year.
0: Richard, um, what is your estimation on the uh, commercial, excuse me, What what is your estimation on the military aviation impact of these added inflation costs? I mean, is there a figure out there that you can hang your hat on given the aggregate, massive, titanic, gigantic number that constitutes um, United States military aviation investment on a year over year basis.
1: Well, I think you just said it best with the the gigantic massive titanic thing and Ron certainly said it before there's so much cash involved here that you're still talking about something that's a little bit marginal there's just a couple of things I'm concerned about um you know first of all, you know, is it going to be much more than a few extra percent per year? Yeah, look, nothing that can't be dealt with. It'll probably show up. Maybe maybe supplementals will take care of some of it. Otherwise, you might lose a few percent of buying power, nothing serious. But I am concerned about a couple things. One is that inflation is never just inflation. We all know that. You know, I mean, it takes three forms in our world. One is energy, not an issue. The other is um, materials may or may not be an issue, depending upon long-term pricing contracts, things like that. And, and associated logistical costs and whatever else. And then I think the biggest, of course, is personnel. And within personnel, of course, there are many different buckets. And I would argue the place you're going to see inflation the most is uh, on the engineering and design side of the house. Um, because first of all, you know, it's, it's, it's not a global market. You can't import scientists and engineers in many cases to come and work on, on DOD funded programs. You can, but it's harder. And H-1B visas aren't getting any easier. Um, and also you've got an RDT and E budget that's outperformed every other budget budget metric at the Pentagon. So in other words, we're putting a lot more cash into design and engineering. That, that's, I think, where you could see a concerning impact upon weapons development costs, uh, costs because it, this stuff can't be automated you know, and you can't bring in You know, lots and lots of foreign engineers. It just isn't practical. So I am concerned about buying power of RDT and E. I'm also concerned about the knock-on effect for new commercial product developments because, you know, if you are hearing this giant sucking sound, Ron's been saying this for years, you know, Boeing engineers being snapped up by Northrop Grumman to work on the B-21. That has always sounded exactly right. This will make that problem worse because those B-21 R&D costs are or, you know, for that matter, Flora, whoever wins Flora, or any other number of engineering projects, it's all going to be reimbursed by the government. And I think it'll show up in the wash. And that will inflate costs for the commercial world, where, of course, it will not be reimbursed by the government. And that means we could have a chill put upon the budget for IRAD, commercial product development, uh, across the board as a consequence of this inflation and the higher costs that DOD is willing and able to pay.
0: Um, did did DOD efforts to accelerate military procurement help mitigate commercial price impacts, right? I mean, uh, we heard from uh, the former Navy acquisition executive, Hondo Gertz, who was accelerating uh, work on the Pentagon side, right? I mean, his attitude was the commercial aviation side of the business needs us. We really, really need them. So whatever we can do to help them is a great thing. Did that ultimately have any impact on mitigating the impact on commercial aerospace manufacturers, especially in critical Parts, uh, uh, critical areas of the supply chain.
1: I mean, I hate to say it, but um, and you know, his concerns are admirable. But I hate to say it, but the best way to help is probably to buy fewer planes. That's not, that's not practical or desirable. But you know, my favorite anecdote in industry history from 1967, when F four output hit this ridiculous peak at McDonnell. Um, You know, I mean, I think it was a peak of what's, you know, you're talking commercial rates of like they were building sixty or seventy fighters a month or something like that with the uh, the F four. I forget the exact number, but it was it was you know a record for fighter production in this jet fighter production in this country, and the knock on effect Douglas aircraft was disastrous, resulting, of course, in McDonnell saying, "Yeah, you might just want to accept our terms (laughs) for a merger." Um, So there is this crowding out effect, and I'm I'm not really sure how the military side can help if it is having that fundamental crowding out impact.
0: But before we wrap this up, uh, Ron and Sash, any last thoughts on the issue?
2: Yeah, I mean, you know, to Richard's point, um, he, this interplay between defense and commercial—you uh, know, not to kind of flog Boeing again—but with what's been going on in Boeing's defense programs. Um, you have to wonder. I mean, if Boeing had a very, 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 very robust growing defense business right now, um, that would be helping them more on the commercial side. I would argue, but um, you know, they are they I guess they're doing okay in defense, but um, their their peers seem to be doing better. Sash, just,
3: I just—I mean, I—I I, I wanted to come back. I, um while uh Richard uh, and Ron were talking, I was just looking at up um some research that we we did over a decade ago now, but. Um, which addresses the issue of underlying defense inflation as opposed to um, broader economy inflation. But uh, we identified then that defense inflation in a a low inflation environment, which is what we used to be in, was running certainly in the UK at upwards of 3% above standard inflation. And the components of that that we identified were higher than average wage inflation because defense companies are trying to hire in engineers who are in huge demand elsewhere in the economy, and therefore they have to pay out for it. Um, rec- you know The fact that as volumes in general have been falling, and the F-35 is a very, very notable exception to this, but you know, volumes have been falling on a generational basis since the 1950s. Um, uh, but what that does is that that has an underlying effect on uh, the sort of volumes you, you can get down the learning curve. And then a requirement for increased performance, which is of itself... A, a function of the fact the volumes are falling. You know, if, if you have fewer units out there, whatever they are, they've got to be a lot better to give you the same sort of coverage. And that runs at about you know between one and two percent. So it's a. I I think defense inflation has always been there, but when you have uh, broader economic inflation, uh, you know, underlying that, effective as the starting point on the first of January, that makes life very very difficult for uh, defense ministers. Vanguard,
2: one, one more point to add. Sure, of course. Yeah, the the, the one thing I would add that's interesting, this is some work we've done in the past and we're looking at currently. If you look at the defense stocks, at least in the US, they they tend to be not all that sensitive to interest rates, believe it or not, until interest rates hit a certain point. So where, you know, the broad thinking is is as interest rates go up, equity markets generally, um, it's not great for equity markets, right, because the discount rate that you would discount future cash flows at goes up, so values go down. for defense, they're pretty agnostic to interest rates until interest rates hit a, a certain threshold. And, and the kind of the, that threshold we've noticed over the years is about you know 5%. So if you were to hear, see the 10-year get to about 5%, which is a pretty humongous game from where we are today, then you'd maybe start to see an, an impact on the defense stocks, at least historically. So uh, for what it's worth, I mean, the defense stocks tend to be reasonably immune to rising interest rates. And maybe by inference, that means maybe they're immune to inflation.
0: And before we go, uh, really quickly on two points, we we can't get out of this program without talking about the Omicron and its impact. Uh, obviously, thousands of flights canceled over the holiday season, continuing impacts uh, with uh, absenteeism uh, driven by the virus uh, in, in part. Is it worse than Delta? Is it not, again, a lot of people are still losing their lives to the vaccine, uh, you know, in, um, especially among those unvaccinated battles over masks and uh, vaccine mandates uh, continue. Obviously, Supreme Court hearing about them. Any sort of underlying change in your guys' assumptions, right? Small blip. Or do we need to gird for another wave, the next one of which could actually elude uh, our vaccinations and and testing regimes and, and the like? Whoever wants to start that off.
2: Maybe I can jump in on that one. Which is from you know, our my own little microcosm. You know, as you know, our, you know, our our defense and aerospace conference was supposed to be held live and ended up being held virtually. And we're starting to see that more across the, the street. Um, there's more discussion around events being pushed out. Things in the, at least in the business world in terms of group gatherings, have gotten a little more nebulous. Um, we're hosting another conference in in March. Um And our hope is that it will be live. But, you know, at this point, it's not certain that it'll be. Uh, And I think if you rewind the clock, not that long ago, there was no, you know, for for sure, our our conference in January was going to be live and, you know, March completely would be live. So, you know, from that perspective, it just seems to be pushing this recovery mode a bit to the right. I mean, ultimately, you know, hopefully this all passes. And I think the expectation is. Um, if you look at you know, South Africa and other places where Omicron's been, it, it kind of peaks and it falls off pretty quick. And hopefully that's what happens here. But um, I would say it's you know, it's it's made this kind of how things are going to come back, at least in the first half of the year, a little more murky than it was before.
0: Uh, yeah, I mean, it, 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 it certainly is. Right. And, and uh, the conference was supposed to be the first in-person B of A event. Right. Since. Uh, yeah. March of 2020 so that it was all, all eyes were on it on whether or not it was right I mean you guys were even going we, we were going to be in the bigger auditorium uh, as well right instead of the conference room upstairs
2: yeah and and, and and you know we would have had the I would have had the unique um uh we were the last live conference believe it or not that conference in March I'm talking about it. we were the last live one at the bank and we would in the first live one, had it all kind of went off. So we'll we'll see how it all goes. But yeah, they, they were making the you know the proper precautions by having a bigger room, a bigger space, and all the all the, the the different things you need to do in the current environment to pull it off safe. And then in the end, the decision was made that we we, we really couldn't do it. And to be clear, you know we've all had message. You know the bank has communicated with us that. You know, we were discouraged from going in the office last week. We're discouraged from going in the office this upcoming week. And I think the bank and maybe many businesses are, instead of just saying, hey, we're going to come back in three months, they're just doing it week by week to see how things go. Uh, which,
0: which is, uh, which is uh, a good good call. Um, but very quickly, uh, Sash uh, and Richard, and then want to get your guys' sense on what you're looking for in the week ahead. Go ahead.
3: Yeah, I, I mean, I agree with Ron. I think companies are now taking this on a week-by-week, week, certainly no more than one month-by-month month basis. From you know a UK perspective, Omicron is not as severe as Delta. It just doesn't kill people uh, anything like the same way. Um, there is a surprising amount of optimism in the UK that this is burning itself out. It's become endemic. Yeah, that's fine, but it's becoming so like flu uh, that... Um, it's it's not a it's neither a threat to health systems nor is it a major threat to um, uh, you know to, to people's lives it is a very you know it's a very unpleasant virus but um, we've had unpleasant viruses before what i think has been interesting about the impact on air travel of omicron is it's been different from delta delta and uh, alpha before it um, governments countries stopped people flying um, either by saying you know, you can't come in here, or by uh, raising a series of uh, bars in terms of uh, either vaccination or testing or so forth that um, really you know, made, made people unkeen to, to fly. What has really affected the cancellations in the, uh, of flights in the last couple of weeks hasn't been that, it's been that people have been getting ill uh, f- flight crews have been getting ill and it's been very, very hard for airlines to maintain what were probably slightly inflated uh, expectations for uh, schedules because they just haven't had the crews uh, to put together. The good news about that is that that is something that can, you know, that, that's evidence that this virus is, is starting to burn out now. Um, if what we were having was governments just saying global lockdowns, then yeah, I would be really worried about the prospects for a recovery as it is. Uh, I think that uh, you know we're, we're just feeling a little bit more relaxed about things. Look at the uh, global flight movements over the you know over the whole Christmas New Year period, basically flat. Uh, now that's not great, but it's uh, it, you know it hasn't been a collapse or anything like that. The collapse really has been in expectations because people wanted it to be better. But that's because ton of flight crews have been ill. They and the vast majority will get better. Richard.
1: Yeah, I agree uh, 99% with Sash. The only uh, exception I would say is the word L, uh, you know, I, they yes, they they've gotten COVID, but a lot of it is just mandatory quarantine periods that take staff offline uh, even though they're no longer particularly symptomatic and I understand the need for those completely. But, you know, I, this is yes, I agree completely with both Ron and Sash. This is more just evidence of endemicity. You know, I've got international travel coming up in February and March. No change to my plans. And frankly, I'm, I'm thinking it's all gonna happen. Uh, feeling pretty good about it. And yes, there will be back and forth. Even I've got a couple of in-person meetings this week. One of them went virtual, then it went back. They just said, ah, you know, heck, let's make an exception. And I think you'll see more of that as people try to cope. Wise people will be much less at risk because they take appropriate precautions, ideally vaccination, but at least masks in appropriate places. Uh, the last than wise people will, uh, unfortunately, continue to get sick and in some cases die. That's bad. Uh, but we're going to find ways to manage it. And I don't think it's going to impact the industry uh, the way it had in the past.
0: Uh, from your mouth to God's ears, as the saying goes, and uh, hopefully trip insurance. Uh, very quickly, 30 seconds from each of you. What are the big things you're looking forward to in the week ahead?
3: Airbus twenty twenty one orders and deliveries. year. Uh, it's going to be very, very. I mean, very interesting. Very interesting just to see how many aircraft they got out in December. Probably nowhere near as many as they got out in December twenty twenty. Interestingly, there was quite a good uh, couple of articles on Reuters last week suggesting that uh, there is some debate between Airbus and its auditors about whether they delivered six hundred and six or six hundred and eleven aircraft, and that will really depend on the the, the find. The fine print of the uh, the terms of the the deals that they actually did with the airlines at the end of it, but you know, Airbus will have had a pretty good uh, year, had a very very good year uh, given the circumstances. We'll be analysing the numbers to look at which customers really came through in terms of uh, taking orders uh, right at, at the end of the fourth quarter.
0: And uh, anything about the investor lawsuit about the bribery scandal, three hundred million pounds.
3: Investors saying now in 2021, or sorry, 2022, you know, we are concerned about a bribery scandal that uh, was occurring through most of the last decade. The idea that anybody who bought stock after about 2010 was not aware that the authorities in um, France, UK, US were looking at, uh, at bribery, they were astonishingly foolish. Uh, investors, The idea that, that that somehow hiding this was inflating the Airbus share price is, in my view, complete baloney. And uh, Richard?
1: Yeah, same uh, for Boeing, uh, of course, that's coming out next week, and that's going to be really interesting. Uh, yes, uh, you know, the question of Airbus in December is, 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 is interesting, but what's more interesting is what the hell is going on <laughs> with inventory clearance at Boeing, because inevitably, people are going to compare what happened last year. With seven thirty-seven maxes that were already built but uh, now being delivered um, relative to expectations a year ago, and they're going to say, "Hey, <laughs> why weren't those planes delivered faster?" And of course, the big question: When are they going to get to rate thirty-one? Will they answer those questions? I don't know. Even bigger seven eight seven inventory clearance. You know, Boeing is letting leaks and rumors drive news that's never good you know <laughs> When is this right. thing going to return to production return to service and of course the clear the deck of decks of the 100 or so dreamwriters that have already been built but recurring theme here not delivered uh these are big questions that we hope to hear some kind of answer to early this week
2: ron last word yeah i'm with both richard and Sasha. that did seeing what both major oems delivered is uh probably the key point this week. And, and more importantly, we all have some idea of what's going on at Airbus. I mean, I think that'll be less controversial. It's really what's going on at Boeing on the 7.3. Uh, and if they say anything about the, the 7.8.7, uh, you, know, you know, one of the things, right, that has kind of seemed, seems have come out over the last, call it, month or so, is that, you know, 7.8.7 deliveries at best could start in, in April, but it might not be until late Q2, which implies midsummer or early summer for 787 deliveries to start. So anything around that will be helpful.
0: Guys, thanks very much. Hope you guys have a terrific week. And thanks again so very much for joining us.
2: Take care. Great to be here, Vago. Like I always say, it wouldn't be a weekend without it. Thanks very much indeed, Vago.
1: Absolutely, Vago. Thanks for having us on.